Okay. Any questions? It doesn't look like I've got any questions. Okay, so you might. Oh, oh, you got some there. Whoa. Okay, I'll answer another one. Okay, I can answer them quickly. Very good. Here we go. But apparently, I have to finish at nine o'clock. Otherwise, I will turn into pumpkin. Actually, <laughs> I already am, aren't I? Sort of. Dear Ajahn, can't explain the difference between the Dhammapada and the Sutta. So, after the Buddha passed away, as mentioned, at Venerable Ananda, uh, he got enlightened just in time, the last minute. You know, just, I'm sure he's Japanese somewhere because the last, just in time, that was actually created by the Japanese. But anyway. So he, he came through the keyhole and they asked him about all his knowledge of what the Buddha taught. And so then we had our suttas. So he started off with the Diginikaya, Majjhiminikaya, Samyutinikaya, and the Anguttarinikaya, and then at the very end they had the Kudakanikaya, the miscellaneous. And so there they have a number of suttas, you know, like the Udana in Itiwutika and the Dhammapada as well. So these were sayings, when I mean, you find these sayings in the Dhammapada in other suttas, but uh, they had a whole book you know, called the Dhammapada, sayings of the Buddha, and sometimes the stories behind those sayings. And it becomes uh, quite uh, an easy, just a little saying, and the story behind it. It's very good to teach, especially it's very popular to teach uh, the kids' schools, because they love that. But some of these are you know, very powerful teachings in the Dhammapada. So anyway, that's the main difference between them. The Dhammapada is part of the suttas. And why is it the sutta, most of the words spoken, why is it in the sutta, most of the words spoken by the Buddha or his disciples are repeated several times? One of the reasons is that once we had those suttas uh, collected and agreed upon, the only way they could be preserved is by uh, memorizing them. Because they couldn't print them out, and even writing them down would take for ages. So that different groups of monks, some would uh, remember the first, the long discourses, some would remember the uh, the Majjhima, the middle length saying, some the, the uh, Samyutta, some the Anguttara, and some the Kutaka. And they would uh, spend a lot of time chanting. That's where the chanting originally came from. You'd come together, we'd chant the Sutta, and we'd try and make sure we remembered it correctly. When many people could remember it, that's how it was preserved. And so that some people could memorize the Diginikaya, but they couldn't memorize the Majjhima. Some of the Majjhima are not the Diga, which is why, say, we have a Satipatthana Sutta in the Diginikaya and one in the Majjhima Nikaya. And also in the Samyutta Nikaya, we have the Satipatthana Samyutta, which gives some really interesting uh, explanations uh, of the, say, Satipatthana Sutta. And so every seem, it seemed that every group. Now they've always made sure that in each of those sutta groups 
you had almost like a complete teaching in there of all the major important parts of what the Buddha said. And of course, when it's repeated many, many times, sometimes that, that gets a little bit... Uh, you feel that, you know, well, I've heard this already, can't it be edited? But what happens if it's edited, and sometimes it's, it is edited, and you look at some of the, um, the suttas, and they've just got dot, dot, dot. In Pali, it's called payala, just usually P-E, which means etc. So sometimes when we, you know, we know what's going on, these are, say, the, the Eightfold Path, you know, Samaditi, that means etc. And the trouble is that when you put those in there, sometimes you miss out some things. And sometimes, you know, when, for example, when I saw all the times, you know, you got, you know, Sama Samadhi means the four jhanas. And then sometimes that because that was abbreviated, you didn't get the full force that, you know, that these deep meditation was so important in the Buddha's teachings. You know, almost repeated in every sutta. So, it was repeated many times to reinforce its legitimacy. Just the same way, I mean, not as deep as the Buddha, but all the stories which I say, I repeat many times. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think you get the point here. Because they're relevant in different contexts. In the Tibetan traditions, why must the monks debate on the teachings of the Buddha with metta? They cannot debate on the teachings, they can sometimes debate on the meaning. But debating really doesn't uh, cut the ice to me. You can always just have an argument with somebody, but the best way to solve the issues of what do these teachings actually mean is actually to, to experience them for yourselves. Because usually when you go on a debate, it's usually the person with the best command of language wins the debate, not the one who actually knows the truth of things. And so that's one of the reasons why debates can be fun. And that's why a lot of time when you do have a debate, you try and get somebody who's amusing. Because if they're amusing, you keep the people on side, you entertain people, otherwise it gets as boring as hell. And so, do you understand when they have debates? There's one of the debates which I always remember, it was recorded, and I think I mentioned this, I'm not quite sure if it's in The Art of Disappearing or in the book um, which I wrote of, um, I think, Mindfulness, Bliss and Beyond. There was this person who's really good at debating, or two people, and the first person, they were trying to debate about non-self. And so uh, one of them said, you know, who are you? And the other monk said, you are a dog. He said, who is a dog? Said the other monk. Said, you are. Who is you? Me. Who is me? And said, a dog. And they kept on going around on like this. And the monk who was, you know, trying to be serious and trying to point out what's anatta, what's non-self, couldn't actually see that he was calling himself a dog and allowing himself to be called a dog all the time. And all the people listening were laughing their heads off. 
And in the end, am I explaining it well enough? So, you know, um, who are you? And you said, you say me. Who is me? Ajahn Brahm. Who's Ajahn Brahm? Me. And you know, who are you? You're a dog. And <laughs> I don't mean that, of course, please don't say that. But what it was, the, one, the two people were just debating from different perspectives. And the one who created just more amusement was the one who won the debate. So sometimes it's just a bit of fun and games. So anyway, we don't debate. I have a lot of wandering thoughts to my a lot of wandering thoughts during my meditation. On occasion that my mind does settle down, I feel so relaxed that I become very sleepy. How do I balance between these two states, restlessness versus loss? Many people giggle there because that question was relevant to you. It was really relevant to me as well when I was a young monk. And I think I've given a little bit of an answer to that. I realize a lot of the sloth and torpor, the tiredness, can be overcome by resting more. Not just your body, but your poor brain. Your brain is often overworked. It thinks too much. It carries up some of the stuff from the past which you don't need to remember. It takes up worries about the future which probably will never happen. People who have anxiety, one of the ways of overcoming anxiety is write down all the things you're anxious about and then see how many of them actually happen. And you find out most of the time you're worrying about things which never actually happen. And sometimes how stupid is that, that worry, that anxiety? And so when you don't waste your mental energy on things which you don't have to do. For example, the, I'm not quite sure what's happening in Bodhinyana Monastery. I go there you know, after this session and I sleep there and I leave in the morning and I walk over here so I hardly see anybody over there. I haven't got a clue what they're doing over there. Am I worried about that? No way. <laughs> oh, I do see them at lunchtime. Sorry, yeah, that's true, at lunchtime. But some of the monks are on retreat, I don't see them at all. I trust them. Sometimes they do things which are stupid, but that's life. But that trust means I don't have to worry too much. One of the monks I really uh, admire to this day is um, the monk who took over from Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Liam. Uh, and I remember going to pay respects to him many years ago. When I paid respects to him, I just asked him, it was a standard way of greeting a senior monk in Thai. He's like, are your monks, your disciples, easy to train? And he was running Wapapong. Are your monks easy to train? He said, yeah, they're really easy. And that quite shocked me. How come? And he said, oh, if they want to go that way, I'll let them go that way. If they want to go that way, I'll let them go that way. They're very easy to train. 
And that's what he said. And that wasn't just irresponsible. You know, he told me just a lot of times, even your mind, how do you train your mind? It goes wandering off, does it? So it goes thinking, why don't you follow it and go with it? Then it doesn't wander off. You wander with it and it's always with you. And that's not a joke. You're aware and you stay with the mind. What really is wandering off is you're meditating, watching your breath go in and out, in and out, and then ten minutes later, where's my mind been? You've been thinking about all sorts of stuff. That's real wandering off. But if the mind starts to think, and you're with that mind all the time, can you call that restlessness? Wandering off, you're with the mind all the time. So where it goes, you go with it. People want to control the mind. They want to keep it on the breath. So when it goes off somewhere else, you know, you get disappointed because you've lost control. And when you get into deep meditation, you really lost control. In deep meditation, you're blissing out close to Nibbana. You're supposed to let go of control. Don't be control freak. Okay, who's closest? Can you come up here? Are you an honest gentleman? Okay. I'm now going to hold this water perfectly still. Has it stopped moving yet? The water in here. No, it's still moving. Okay. Why? It's because I'm not being mindful. I'm not being mindful. Has it stopped moving yet? No. Okay. And now I'll concentrate. <laughs> you know, I, I don't mess around here. That when I concentrate, it moves more every time. How can I keep this water perfectly still? Put it down. Now, have a look at that. Is it moving? Yeah, it is. Quite a lot. Now it's settling down. All by itself. Still moving a little bit, but I couldn't hold it that still. Now is it still? Perfect. Thank you. So I usually give a round of applause to my assistants. <laughs> I'm only messing around. But that is actually just how when you let things go, you don't try and control things. Things become still. So the wandering mind and restlessness and sloth and torpor, they go together. Don't fight sloth and torpor. Again, I'm, so often I used to do that. And what happened was I got through sloth and torpor I was restless. So I can calm down the restlessness, Ajahn Brahm. And I calmed down the restlessness and I fell asleep again. It's like going from one extreme to the other and never finding that beautiful middle. There had to be a middle somewhere. But I was either tired or restless. And I always decided the restlessness was a difficult one. So I stayed with sloth and torpor. And then a weird thing happens when you are still a little bit mindful of the sloth and torpor, not much mindfulness, but you had some mindfulness. Even a person who is drunk 
can manage to find their way home in the evening. At least they've got a little bit of mindfulness. Not much, but a little bit. So I used that mindfulness which I had when you were tired. And that mindfulness, its main job was not to do anything. Not to waste the little energy which I had. And of course, eventually the energy started coming back. And I remember this, this beautiful thing to notice. The body starts to straighten up, the head goes up. The body starts to feel really good. And the mind starts to wake up. And the sloth and torpor disappears and it's not replaced by restlessness. It's replaced by clarity of the mind. You can see really clearly and you haven't got this terrible just mind running all over the place. And that is one of the best ways to overcome this sloth and torpor. There's one of the... I'd better not do too many stories. Okay, that's enough there. Dear Ajahn, can we be enlightened in this lifetime? Yes. <laughs> can doesn't mean will. In other words, it's possible. Of course it's possible. And some people do it. It's surprising. Some people can meditate for lifetime after lifetime after lifetime and don't get it. But it's still worth doing. Dear Ajahn, what does dedication of merits do when the departed have already left this life? Have they really left totally? Because sometimes what happens is it takes a while for them to take rebirth and sometimes they linger, a while, linger around for a while. And sometimes that even if they cannot receive the merits which we dedicate to them, you know, the deceased relations, it's still worthwhile that you do that. They may not receive the merits, but it's such a beautiful thing for you to do. You all know that, I hope by now, my own father died fifth, when I was 16, 55 years ago. And any opportunity I have to share merits with them, I will always do that. When people share merits with their father, I will share merits with mine as well. And I don't care if he receives it. Oh, I do care if he receives it or not, obviously. But if I don't mind if he doesn't receive it because I still love to do that. Some way of just you know, expressing that care for someone who's passed away. Say with my mum. There was... One lady over in Thailand, and when I was visiting her uh, over in Thailand, and she made this meal for me, which was, you know, bangers and mash, sausages with mashed potatoes and gravy. I don't know why she did that, but then I looked at the calendar, it was my mother's birthday. And that was one of her favourite foods. And so straight away, I dedicate the merits of this to my deceased mother. And it's a beautiful thing to do. And I don't worry whether my mother's got reborn in a lovely place and doesn't need those merits. I'll still send them anyway, whether she can receive them or not. It's good for the person who sends those merits. And very often it does actually reach the recipient. 
sometimes they don't know. Years ago, at the end of these retreats, we would do like a guided loving-kindness meditation. And sometimes at the end of the retreat, you know, you, every one of you, doesn't matter how you think, you've got some power, you've been meditating all this time, your mind is more still and easier to focus. And then I tell you, I tell the meditators, at one point in the guided medita- meta-meditation, now think of someone, usually someone close to you, maybe a relation or a really dear friend who's really struggling, is having some really bad health issues. And then I said, zap them with loving kindness. Really get into it and just imagine this beautiful energy inside of you and spread it all around them like some golden light, healing, cherishing them, giving them so much beautiful energy. And I get into it, I really don't spend more time speaking about it during the meditation. And then I look at the time, and I keep a note of that time. You zap one of your relations or loved ones with this beautiful loving kindness. And then, after the meditation is finished, I say, that was the time we did this. When you go home after the retreat, you know, not just straight away, give a call to that person. And just ask them, said, oh, just how are you? And if you don't mind me asking, what were you doing at that time? One of the reasons I don't do that anymore is because so many people would call me up and say, Ajahn Brahm, it worked! <laughs> and I asked, you know, my uh, sort of auntie was going through some chemotherapy or something, I said, what were you doing at that time? That's weird you asked that, because I was thinking of you. You'd be surprised as how effective it is, even loving kindness. And I note the time down, and I said, yeah, at that time. I was thinking of you, and I felt so good. Thank you for sharing that loving-kindness with me. And I do that just to prove it to people, that even though it's such a long distance away, you know, it's someone you love, someone you care for, there is a connection there, and it does work. So, and they're departed as well, even if they're departed in some other realm, or got reborn again. It's weird, but sometimes they can feel that. Can you please explain the lesson learned from this afternoon's sutta? Thank you. There's many lessons from that which I was pointing out. One of them was that uh, the Buddha, Gotama, in his previous life was a monk with Kasapa, the previous Buddha. They say, and this is for everybody without exception, that in order even to become a stream winner, it takes Yonisa Manasikara, which is like the work of the mind which goes to the source of things, plus Paratagosa, the words of another. So could the Buddha become self-enlightened without the words of another? That would be contradicting the sutta. 
So, you say he did have the words of another Buddhakasapas. So you can see that because he was trained to that degree under Buddhakasapa, that allowed the Buddha Gautama to become enlightened. What about Buddha Kasapa? That was the previous Buddha. What about the previous Buddha, the one before him? Goes on and on and on. So there's lots of lessons there. Challenges perceptions as well. That was one of the lessons, but there's lots of others as well. There seems to be a lot to draw out from today's suttas. Oh, you see? I'm interested to understand more about cause and effect. Is it that even a Sama, some Buddha, needs to have the conditioning, i.e. teaching of another Buddha or Arya? Yeah. It's just I mentioned that. Just somehow or other I, I saw this question before. Paradoxically, It's amazing. I never saw this question. Uh, and Manasakura career being the two factors required for stream entry. Yes. It is all very, very encouraging to realize we are simply conditioned processes. Yeah, personal capacities, paramis, gifts, etc. came into it far less than we think. Perhaps it is enough to hear the Dhamma developing faith and practice with the path. Exactly. So the paramis, and of all the paramitas, that's an interesting part of the history of Buddhism because that... Uh, they said that the being a bodhisattva, putting off your own enlightenment for other beings, was an alternative to becoming an arahat. And if you want to be a bodhisattva, you've got to do the six parameters. And Theravada will not be put off by that. Because in those days, there was a lot of competition between Theravada and Mahayana, the bodhisattva path and the arahat path. And there was no mention of six parameters in the suttas. But nevertheless, they had six parameters there. And so, that was in Mahayana. And so the Theravada, we can't be undone by the Mahayana. We have to go one better. They went four better. So we have ten parameters as, 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 as Theravada. We've got more parameters than they do. <laughs> and that was the stupid stuff. If you've ever been to Sri Lanka to Anuradhapura, that was a big uh, capital of Buddhism a long time ago, you know, in Sri Lanka. And they had these two big monasteries there, the Mahavihara and the Abhayagiri. And I was in uh, Anuradhapura. And they have a museum of some of the relics they have there. And one of the things which really brought me laughing was some of the Abhyagiri monks, they didn't like the Mahawira monks, so they made these squat toilets, you know the squat toilets which you have? And they were made out of stone, but in the stone they had carved um, likenesses of the Mahavira monks. So that when the Abhyagiri monks went to the toilet, they <laughs> It was gross, you know, what they were doing. But, you know, that's how the competition, you know, between who's, who's got the right teacher and who's got the wrong teacher, who practices properly. 
and there's always competition like that, it's just human nature, but you just see that and don't get involved in it. So, yeah, it's very nice what you said there. I have a lot of wandering thoughts. Oh, yeah, I've done that one already. I'm putting it in the wrong box. Eh? Okay. I have a lot of aches and pains at my. Did you take out the questions from yesterday? No, you took them out? Yes. Okay. I thought they'd gone back in again. I have a lot of aches and pains in my legs after 34, 30 to 45 minutes of sitting. How do I send kindness to reduce the aches and pains so it does not detract me from meditation? Move. <laughs> no, I mean that because if you move, you're having loving kindness to the body. The body's giving you a message. You're sitting too long in that posture. Find a better posture. If you find a better posture, sometimes you can find just exactly the right posture. So in this meditation, you have a minimal pain. And number two, I said this before, but this is really fascinating. Sometimes maybe your limit is, let's say, an hour, and after that you get really sore. But sometimes, if you get into the deep meditation where you go beyond the body, to even limiters is good enough for this, and if you get like nimbutas and stay there for a while, because you're not actually aware of your body, you get out of its way. The body, I'm not quite sure how it does this, because you're not mindful of the body this time, you're mindful of the nimbuta. Your body relaxes so much when you're out of the way. And you come out of meditation, and you think, oh my goodness, that's three hours. This is going to hurt coming out. And then you start looking at your body, there's not an ache or a pain anywhere. The body is just incredibly relaxed. The longer you sit, the healthier it feels. And what that told me is that when I am watching the body, it's so hard to leave it alone and let it heal itself and relax. Whenever you start watching the body, you tense up with it. It's hard to leave it alone. And it's wonderful when you don't watch the body because the body is vanished and your mindfulness is in the sixth sense. So you'll find that out for yourselves one day. Saying, oh my goodness, that's four hours of meditation. This is going to hurt getting up. You start moving your legs. No pain at all. Anyway, thank you for the privilege of asking you questions. It depends what the questions are. If they're bad ones, you'll be banned. <laughs> no. Sometimes people ask me funny questions, and I really admire those, because when you get too serious in the evening, people fall asleep, the, rest, the restlessness gets overcome by sloth and torpor. So just interesting questions or funny ones are just really welcome. Refuge means a source of shelter and protection. I understand taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha, but why take refuge in the Buddha himself? Isn't he dead? <laughs> it's what the Buddha stands for, is what you take refuge in. And in fact, they always say in the qualities of the Buddha, perfectly enlightened. And you have sometimes have confidence in that. And sometimes when you experience some of the things which the Buddha experienced, 
And that gives you huge confidence. How many of you have been to the four Buddhist holy places? First jhana, second jhana, third jhana, and fourth jhana. It's a trick question, but it's meaningful. Because actually in the, I think it's the Chua Hattipadopama Sutta, that's how the Buddha described those places. That's where he hung out most of the time. Not physically, but the mentally. That was his uh, peaceful abidings. So if you want to go to where the Buddha lived, get into deep meditation. You do not have to pack baggage. You do not need to have a passport and have COVID jabs and worry about where you're going to stay and get checked by the customs officers. So it makes life very easy when you know how to go on the real Buddhist pilgrimage to the four jhanas. And I say that, and you, you can do it. Don't think, oh, I'm just a lay person, I can't do these things. Yes, you can. And said, I've been practicing so often, and it hasn't happened yet. That's got nothing to do with it. Honestly, sometimes people don't believe me, but it's true, it has nothing to do with it at all. So, one of the descriptions of even the first jhana what you are aware of, how you feel. One of the descriptions the Buddha said, the experience of just even the first jhanas, the experience of Sambodhi Sukha. When I first saw that in the suttas, that's goosebumps. Sambodhi means enlightenment happiness. Why on earth did the Buddha say that? It's not enlightenment, but it's so close. It gives you what we call the taste of freedom, the taste of enlightenment. You understand how the Buddha felt, because if any one of you experienced the first jhana, you actually experience how the Buddha felt. There is no difference between a Buddha's experience of jhana and yours. Such a simple state, such a blissful state, your experience precisely what the Buddha felt. And that's goosebumps. Wow, you mean you can do it these days? Yes, of course you can. And all these people sometimes, I call it like they fluked a jhana. But the you check them out, and it was true, it was a jhana. Someone, I think it was the layman Lee Brassington, he wrote a book about samadhi, and he ranked you know, the people who um, can, you know, you can ask whether this was a jhana or not, and just how strict they were. And apparently the second in the list who, you know, just, if you want to ask, you know, was this a jhana or not, they're very tough. And that was Paroxido, I think he was number two. And uh, to become, you know, to be confirmed by him, you had a jhana that was very tough. But the toughest monk of all to ask was Ajahn Brahm. I don't say a person's got a jhana easily. My standards are very high when it comes to jhanas. 
And so they said, don't ask Ajahn Brahm, <laughs> it's too tough. No. But anyway, somebody, I didn't read the whole book, but they showed me that little passage and I was laughing my head off. So sometimes people do get these jhanas. And sometimes people you don't expect. And that's a wonderful thing. When I say it's possible, you're opening up doors. I don't say it will happen. I say it's possible. Which means it gives you that opportunity to allow the mind to go very, very deep. But tomorrow morning, I promised someone I'd tell this tomorrow morning, I'm going to be talking about the simile of the thousand petal lotus. So it's one of my favourite similes about how meditation actually works and how simple it is and what happens. But that's tomorrow's talk. The morning and evening chants describe the Buddha as a perfect teacher. Yeah. But yesterday he explained how his teachings led to multiple suicides. (laughs) That seems very imperfect. Please explain. You can't blame the teacher. You can blame the other monks for not understanding the teaching. Doesn't matter. You can lead a horse to water, but can you make them drink? So, still a very good teacher, a perfect teacher. That's the best you can get. In the forward of one of your books, haha, <laughs> yeah, Jack Cornfield cautions readers not to think your way is the only Buddhist way. Please describe how your way is different, unique. No, it's the only Buddhist way. Jack Cornfield was wrong. <laughs> now, I, he said he was going to write a forward to that, and Wisdom Publications, they were the ones who insisted they put that in there. But anyway, I just at least got the book published and people read it, that's good enough. Please teach us how to bow. It's just easy, just watch somebody else bow. But it's not just the how, the method of bowing, because people do all sorts of different bows. If you're from a Mahayana tradition, you bow and then you put your, your hands up afterwards. That's nothing which we have in Buddhism. Sometimes it's just so cultural, as long as you're paying respect. And I can't resist this one now. Sometimes I remember seeing people in Singapore, the Theravada, and they offer incense to the Lord Buddha. And I see them always shaking it. I've never seen that in Thailand. And I wondered, where did that come from? Is that the right way to offer um, incense to the Buddha? Shake it first of all. And then I finally figured it out. Why? Because I know if it's in Singapore or in Thailand, when you're very young, when you're kids, it is your, usually your grandma takes you to the temple <laughs> and shows you how things are done. And your grandmother has Parkinson's disease. <laughs> so <laughs> she puts the incense in there and you blindly follow. Oh, that must be the way of doing it. There's a lot of truth to that. It's funny, yes, but it's a lot of truth. For over two years, a married woman has approached me for sex. 
Sometimes she shows up at my home uninvited at midnight. Is there a point at which I can say, I am not the predator here, it is your marriage, not mine. If you want, come in. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're asking for trouble. Because remember, that is breaking the precepts. The third third precept, Kamesu Michachara, so you know, the person is already married to somebody, so you shouldn't have relations with them if they're already married. And if you're married, you shouldn't have relations with them. So uh, you may not be the predator, but don't be the prey. The predator is a, the person who, who goes searching for you, and if you let them take you, then that's, you're the victim as well. So, three weeks ago I visited the Dalai Lama in Dhammasala. What's it called? In Dhammasala. Sometimes I get them mixed up with Dhammasala, yes. The Dalai Lama isn't there, that's I Hasapanya and the nuns. Uh, there I met Kedrogla whatever. I was told she is in the state oracle of the Tibetan government in exile. One morning I visited the Vajra body, human body encased in wax of Ling Rinpoche. How do you know it really was if it's encased in wax? Could you test it's inside? In the afternoon of the same day I met his reincarnation, Ling Rinpoche the seventh. I was told the Ling Rinpoche was found through extensive divinations. What is the Theravada's view on oracles and divinations? How much should we trust oracles or divinations? Usually very little. But against that, I mean, Ajahn Chah was sometimes asked to predict the future. You know what's coming, don't you? This man came up to him and said, look, can you please read the lines on the palm of my hand and tell me my future? I know you can do it. And Ajahn Chah said, we don't do that as monks. You know, that's almost like banned for monks. And he said, look, I've never asked you much in my whole life. And I've always given you alms, food, and made myself available in my car to take you here, take you there. And you talk about gratitude. Can you please give me some gratitude and read the lines on the, uh, the palm of my hand? It's very difficult to say no when people have arguments like that. You know, show me some gratitude. I'm not asking much. I know you can do it. So Ajahn says, okay. He said, what I tell you will actually happen. Because Ajahn Chah was an amazing monk. So he took his finger and started tracing the lines on the palm of this man's hand. And this man was so excited. You know, Ajahn Chah had never done this to anybody except him. And every now and again, he, Ajahn Chah would stop. Mm. <laughs> oh. Mm. And in the West, we call this winding him up. He wound him up so much, this person was just so excited. <laughs> 
And when Ajahn Chah finished, what's my future going to be? And Ajahn Chah said, I won't lie to you. He said, I know you won't lie, you're a monk. And I trust you can see the future. He said, yes, I can see your future. He said, sir, your future is uncertain. (laughs) And Ajahn Chah was right. (laughs) So don't try this with Ajahn Chah. Uh, And sometimes... Even people ask me that about you know the future of things, and it reminds me of the story of this abbot of a monastery in the north of India, and he was always really good at predicting simple things like the weather. But then he passed away, and a new monk took over. And the new monk who took over, he's a good meditator too. And so when it got to the autumn time, the rest of the Sangha there asked him, so, Abbot, is it going to be a cold winter or a warm winter up in the foothills of the Himalayas? Because we have to collect all the wood. And he said, well, leave it with me tonight and I'll let you know in the morning. I'll meditate tonight. So the senior monk meditated and his meditation wasn't as good as he said. He couldn't really see that future. So instead he got out his mobile phone and he rang up the weather bureau in Delhi anonymously getting through to one of the professors of meteorology there. He said, the weather up in the foothills of the Himalayas, what's it going to be like this year? It's going to be really cold or warm or moderate or what? And the professor said, all the signs are that it's going to be average, not too cold. Thank you. And so he hung up the phone the following morning, the abbot said to everybody, I have found out that the weather this year is not going to be too cold, quite moderate, but please collect some wood just in case. So all the monks were now gathering wood. And then they were working very hard, gathering the wood to keep the monastery warm. And they asked, is this enough? And the abbot said, leave it with me tonight and I'll tell you in the morning. And at night time, he meditated, still meditation no good. So he rang up the meteorological office again. He said, how's it going? Is it going to be a cold winter or a warm winter? And the same professor, not knowing it was a, a monk who was asking him, that actually the signs are, are much worse. I think it's going to be a cold winter, but not too bad. Thank you. So the next morning the abbot said, I've seen, I've heard that it's going to be a cold winter, so you have to go and collect more wood. And so they all went out there and worked their butts off, collecting more wood and storing it in the monastery, and they said, is this enough? And so... Abba said, leave it with me, I'll tell you tomorrow morning. And he, he pretended to meditate, but instead he rang up on his mobile phone, the, the meteorological office, got through to the professor, said, uh, is it going to be a cold winter or a hot winter? And the professor said, actually, the signs are it's going to be extremely cold. And he said, oh, thank you. And then the head monk paused said, how do you know? Are you sure? And the professor said, I'm sure, because the holy monks in the monastery are collecting wood in their mother's business. 
<laughs> and so one said, that's how the stock market works. <laughs> okay. Oh, but in oracles and divinations, and I can't be just too negative about these things, because personal stories. I checked this out so many times. My mother, uh, her first cousin, my mother was an only child. My first cousin, whose name is Opal, was an only child. So they grew up together you know, during the Second World War and just afterwards. And in those days, there was not much to do for entertainment. There were two young women. And so they went to see one of these mediums. And the medium told, you know, my auntie, her name is Opal again, said, you are soon going to meet the love of your life and marry him. And she thought this was crazy. And he said, his name will be Donald Wolfries. Donald was a common name in UK at that time, but Wolfries was a weird name. And so neither my mum nor her cousin believed, they thought it was just hocus pocus. And about a week later, she met this man in a dance. They didn't have clubs in those days, they went to a dance. A nice man and said, What's your name? Said, Donald. Uh oh. Surname, Wolfries. And they were married for 60 years. And uh, he died a few years ago. But this auntie of mine, Opal, she's still alive. It's over 90s now. Amazing woman. And I checked that story so many times. And I said, Yeah, it was there. It was right. I was there at the time. And so did my auntie. Yeah, it was right. And so I might say, How does that work? How can someone see someone? She didn't know him before at all. But then she met this guy, and exactly the name the medium said. Weird. What is the difference and linkage between samadhi and jhanas, please? Jhanas are samadhi. Always, every time in the suttas, the Buddha describes sama samadhi, like samaditi, samawaja, right speech, right samadhi, is jhanas, consistently. And in the Wachagota Sutta, that's where um, people after the Buddha passed away would go and sort of, Ananda was a go-to person. And so they asked Ananda many questions. That's said, Gopakamogalana Sutta. In the Gopakamogalana Sutta, they ask Ananda, what type of meditation did the Buddha teach? And what did the Buddha reply? First jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. So it's all through the sutta, you can read it for yourself. It is not easy to switch from corporate mode to retreat mode. Of course it's easy. If you want to find out where to invest, whether to get more wood in the monastery. <laughs> you come on a retreat and get the, get the information. Any tips to help make this transition more easily? 
is, I don't know, actually I don't know what the corporate mode is. I know a corporation means like, you know, many people or many things working together. And it's nice that when you are on a retreat, it's just you in your hut, on your meditation cushion, sitting on your seat for lunch, where you don't have to think of anybody else at this time. Is that being selfish? It's being no self-ish. <laughs> it's actually a beautiful rest for you, and I think it's a wonderful thing for you to do. And once you have peace, because you've got out of the corporate mode to retreat mode, then once you've got energized, then you can really help others. I think you'll agree I'm a successful monk, but I spend so much time by myself. Remember that, say, six-month retreat which I did? It gives you so much energy, so much peace and so much wisdom. So you don't switch from one to the other, you combine them and realize the retreat is important for corporate success. I read this in a Bangkok Post article many years ago when I was flying on Thai Airways and nothing else to do. I just picked up the newspaper and just had a look. Because there was an article there about the Oriental Hotel in Bangkok had won the prize that year for the best hotel in the world. And one of the managers there was a disciple of mine some years ago. And so I didn't ever sleep there overnight, but they invited me into one of the rooms during the day and gave a talk later on. Uh, well, I shouldn't say this, but I've already started. <laughs> I don't know that if you've ever had the onion soup at the Oriental Hotel in Bangkok, Oh, I mean, that was some of the most delicious soup I've ever had in the world. So don't try and make me onion soup tomorrow, <laughs> because I have to be so careful, because that's what people do. But anyway, so it was the best hotel in the world that year. And they wanted to ask the manager why, or the owner, whatever it was. And the owner of that hotel said that every year, he sends his staff, everyone, from the cleaners to the uh, people on the front desk, to a monastery. That was Ajahn Buddha Dasa's monastery for one week to do a retreat. Not everyone on the same time, obviously, but throughout the 52 weeks of the year. At the hotel's expense. And they said that gives so much more health physical health to their staff and mental kindness so they can serve their clients with a bigger smile and being more sensitive. Imagine that was you if you were the CEO of a company and you realize the benefits of sending every one of your staff again not at the same time to Jana Grove for seven days. It's not off their holidays is paid for by your company. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It would cause me a lot of misery because <laughs> I don't know how we could fit you all in. But it actually works. It increases corporate profits. 
Anyway, dear Ajahn Brahm, I am an introvert and like to think a lot. Would you think inside? You'd think outside stuff. I'm still trying to get into meditating regularly. However, there are many thoughts whenever I try to meditate in the past few years. I'm trying not to be a control freak and letting it be, but I'm worried. Maybe... The one who wrote the question, what was happening in your mind when I paused? Were you thinking? You don't know when I was going to start speaking again, so you couldn't start a train of thought. You were silent. That's how easy it is to be silent. Pause. Don't be afraid. And after a while, silence just grows on you. It's such an easy thing to turn to and far more beautiful than any thought. And also, it creates much better solutions to any problems you have of life. Think about it. You're just doing what other people do. You're silent. You can see more. Should I replace with positive thoughts during meditating? You can try that, but just go straight to stillness. I was saying this to someone the other day. They said that, I don't quite sure why, but then it's all sorts of people with therapies for all sorts of things. And they said, one thing they do every few years is do a, a total blood transfusion to get rid of all the bad blood and get some good blood. And I said that they were offering that to do that to me. I said, I'm not sick. Yeah, it's just prevent you getting sick. But I'm not sick, so you're preventing what I don't have anyway. But they said, and I asked them, said, can you change my blood type? Because my blood type is A positive. I said, can you change it to the best blood type in the world? You know what the best blood type in the world is? B positive. <laughs> they said, no, we can't do that. Well, maybe I'll just be a hopeless meditator. There is no such thing as a hopeless meditator, but happy to have embarked on my spiritual path since I see, I see myself being a lot happier and more kind day by day, quite positive too, seeking your guidance with a nice smiley face on the bottom. It will happen whether you like it or not. Please keep being peaceful. Explore silence. Go for a walk and listen to the sounds of nature in the forest. If you go thinking, you don't listen to anything. You miss out so much. I Sometimes I notice, just before I became a monk, the favorite music I liked was classical music. And I was still, I was meditating a lot then. I wonder why did I like classical music so much? And I realized to be able to listen to it, I had to be silent. If I just miss, you know, just one note, and I, 
the music would not be so beautiful. You have to be shh and listen with all of your your being. That's why, to me, that classical music was an introduction to meditation. You had to be aware, and it wasn't that difficult because it was delightful. But more delightful was the sound of you know, just being silent with no sounds at all. That's why I live in my cave. And I'm sure if you haven't been to my cave yet, there'll be an opportunity before the end of the retreat or at the end of the retreat to go and visit the cave. How many of you have been in my cave? Me? I've been in there. (laughs) And sometimes if you just pause a little bit, you can turn off the lights. There's no sound at all. And don't get your mobile phone out because there's always lights in your mobile phones. Turn that off when you go in there and it's totally silent. Not a sound at all. That's why I love it. Because it teaches me you can be with that silence. You don't have to think at all. And that's much more positive. So if you want to know what silence is, please go and visit my cave. Not when I'm in there, please, but sometime. How come you haven't turned off the lights yet? It's nine o'clock. Don't ask me because I'll say no. (laughs) Just do it. Okay, one more question and then go to bed. (laughs) Why would one want the will to vanish? Because the will is the wanting. So when wanting vanishes, so does your will. And it feels so much more... You know that sometimes people, they cherish their own will. And they have that in constitutions, your right to happiness or to pursue happiness. Actually, the American Constitution says the right to pursue happiness, not to have it. That should be changed. The right to not pursue anything, just to be happy. Because when you realize what the will is, it is enemy number one of your happiness. I compared it many years ago to uh, the prison guard. You have a nice, what you think is your own place, but it's like a cell in prison. And your will never allows you to be still. Always telling you to do something. Just imagine that your will just pause for a while. Don't want the will to stop. That's more will. It's very sneaky. But imagine you didn't want anything in the whole world. What would that feel like? Peace and silence. That's why, that's one of the things which, once it does disappear, and it disappears totally in the second jhana, first jhana it's mostly gone, but second jhana it's totally vanished. And when you're in those states, you realize just how peaceful and beautiful that is. When this world which you don't control, just has totally disappeared and you can have 
hours of peace with nothing to disturb you. We think that we own the will. And of course you don't. It's not yours, it's not who you are. Eventually you find out this the simile which is, I gave this years and years ago of the driverless bus. This was such a long time before Tesla and Google. This was, it was actually about uh, 30, how many years ago? About over 30 years ago, I started off that simile. It's like your life has suffering in it. Sometimes you want your body, your mind to do this. You want to be able to meditate. Why on earth can't you just meditate and watch the breath? What's wrong with that? That shouldn't be difficult at all. You can breathe. Why can't you just sit here for an hour and just watch every breath? What's the problem? The problem is because the driver of your body and mind just doesn't know how to do it. So there comes a time when you want to find out why the person in control of my body and mind why can't it do something to them just for an hour, just to watch every breath? What's wrong with that? So eventually you want to find out who's in control of this body and mind and teach it a lesson. So eventually you find the bus driver's seat. And that gives you a shock, but a great relief. You find your bus driver's seat, the one in control of your body and mind, is empty. There's no one sitting there. It's almost like an automatic pilot, <coughs> according to cause and effect. You know the result of that? See there's no will there. You stop feeling guilty, you stop striving. You stop telling this bus driver, hurry up, slow down. Why are you always driving the wrong way, Will? Do you ever blame yourself for making mistakes? It's not you made those mistakes. It's just your conditioning. I often say, it's actually there's a talk on this in the library somewhere. I talked about conditioning and the absence of will. And then uh, I gave some examples. Like, there was this, this I'm going to stop soon. <laughs> like, the story of the man who had a motorbike accident. They took him to hospital. This was in London. And you know, he had to have one of his legs amputated. He was so badly injured. And they amputated the wrong leg. It does happen. So as soon as they found out, they had to take him back into the surgery and amputate the other leg. And as soon as he recovered, uh, he took the hospital and the surgeons to court. He sued them. He lost his case. He didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> now that stupid joke, that came from my father. <laughs> he told me that joke. So blame him. And so when I gave a talk and used that as an example of the absence of will, as Ajahn Sujato recorded it and he wrote on the cover, the title of the talk is Why Ajahn Brahm Tells Bad Jokes. <laughs> it's not my fault, I can't do anything about it.
Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Okay, excellent.